0: Hi, I'm Elin Miller and this is Everyday Reconciliation. This podcast is a hands-on look at reconciliation, what it means, why it's important, and what everyday actions non-Indigenous people, like me, can take as part of this national project. Today I want to talk about our politics, specifically Indigenous representation in politics, the challenges and opportunities, and what it takes to get a seat at the table. So I'm talking to one of only 10 indigenous MPs currently sitting in the House of Commons, Michael McLeod. Michael has a long history of public service. At 22 years old, he became the first ever indigenous mayor of his hometown of Fort Providence. He later served as an MLA in the Legislative Assembly of the Northwest Territories, and since 2015 has been the MP representing his home territory. Hello, Tanshi, Etlanete. Thanks for joining me today, Michael. Hi, thank
1: you for inviting me.
0: Where are you calling in from today? I'm calling from my home in
1: Fort Providence, Northwest Territories.
0: That's where you were born and grew up, right? You're a Métis of Dene and French-Canadian ancestry from a large family in Fort Providence. And the way you described it to me, you grew up in a fairly traditional way of life. What language did you speak growing up?
1: Well, I was born in in Fort Providence. Uh, It's the first community on the Mackenzie River. Uh, We call the Mackenzie River Decho, which means Big River in the indigenous language of the area. Uh, I was born in a small uh, log cabin, and uh, we had quite a large family. And uh, my family uh, spoke three different languages. Uh, at least my parents did. My parents spoke uh, the Majif French, which is the, the language that uh, uh, some of our uh, family members that came to this area from uh, the the Red River, uh, Ma- Manitoba area, uh, brought the Mijif language with them, and they continued to speak it here. And we also uh, uh, spoke the Dene language, uh, and Dene is the word for Indian here, it means uh, it means people and my parents were were fluent and uh as was everybody in the community and both my parents also spoke english but uh, uh at home we all spoke the motherf language until uh we started at school uh, i i started school at 6 years old and went to the federal indian day school and uh it was it was uh English only and so we were not allowed to speak any any word that was not English and if if you uh, if you did you got you got punished uh, usually by getting strapped with a, a big rubber strap so uh, my parents uh, um, didn't really want uh, you know to to lose our language but at the same time they didn't want us to Get strapped and my mother was very concerned because my dad was uh was very upset anytime anybody punished us that way because as indigenous people uh slapping or hitting or uh raising your hand towards a child it wasn't something that was done like my parents never never ever touched me uh in anger and uh and so my parents, my especially my dad, would get very upset. My mom was I uh, was worried that he was gonna go uh, <laughs> do do something crazy at the school. So uh, you know, we, we we kind of were encouraged just to let let's let's learn the language is what my, my dad was saying. Let's learn to speak English and, and try to and get a good education and we'll try to see what uh, you can do to keep the language down the road, you know, once you got a, a good job and everything is fine. But, um, uh, no, the, the, uh, because we, uh, went from the federal Indian day school and all of us in my family, and, and it was, it was the case for everybody in our community and pretty much over the, all over the North, we were then sent to the residential school. Uh, uh, in, in my case, it was most, it was after I hit high school, but, uh, um, my brothers and sisters uh, went earlier. They went to to the uh, the residential schools at a fairly young age, and and none of us were able to talk to anybody at the residential schools in our language. So uh, we all understand it. Uh, we're still if somebody talks to us uh, in in the Majif language, we we understand it. I understand probably about 50% of the the Denny language or the indigenous language of the area but uh speaking it is a real challenge because I I think in English you know I dream in English I I don't I don't dream in the uh in the, in the in the Metis, Metis French anymore and so uh we went from having quite a few languages uh, spoken in our household pretty much down to one and uh m- my mother actually could could talk to uh, people in 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 the different tribes around the area. Uh, I think probably in five different languages. She spoke three fluently, the ones I mentioned, but she was able to speak uh, to uh, some of the tribes that were a little further away enough to to get the message across. But uh, uh, we did we didn't inherit any of that. We didn't we didn't get any of that because uh, the policies of the day really discouraged us from. From, to uh, speak in the language, and, and it became uh, uh, something that was uh, it was almost a, a shameful to to try to speak the language. Uh, I, I, I noticed that uh, other people would mock us, uh, and uh, even indigenous people would. The ones that were fluent would would joke about our our attempts to speak the language, uh, and uh, so people just quit speaking it pretty much, and now it's a real struggle. Yeah, everybody my age and, and younger are, is, is really struggling. There's there's uh, emerging courses and uh, there's language revitalization attempts happening, but it, it's slow. Uh, the language is deteriorating faster than we're producing speakers, for sure.
0: Right. I tried to greet you initially in Mischief and Dene. I'm not sure what's comprehensible, you can find resources online, but it's not easy to try to learn that's for sure
1: yeah and 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 the michif language uh because it's it's a, a mixture of french and and the traditional language the indigenous language of the area it differs it differs uh like the michif language spoken in Manitoba is different from what we speak in in the northwest territories and and because the Machif language. Was so isolated in the Northwest Territories to a small population of Métis, the language it, it didn't change. You know, the words we use that are, are French are, are so old. Uh, if I try to uh, talk to somebody that speaks French, they, a lot of times will say, "Who talks like that?" I mean, that's how my you're using words that my grandparents would use, you know, uh, and like we we weren't exposed to. Uh, other international French speakers, and uh, so our, our, our little uh, French kind of stayed the same, but now there's nobody left to talk to uh, after i'm in this community to uh, yeah it's very upsetting to to the to the the children that are growing up now, like my children are, are very angry, very angry at the system, very angry at the government, very angry at the church and, and the whole assimilation process that took place uh, and and robbed them uh, robbed me but more them because now they they can't even come to us to to help them uh, I mean I was able to turn to my parents if I was stuck on a word but now it, it, it's harder for me and uh,
0: yeah it can be hard to retain what we learn at such a young age you also got engaged in politics quite young You were only 22 when you were elected mayor of Fort Providence, and then you went on to serve three terms as a member of the Legislative Assembly in the Northwest Territories, the last two in cabinet, and then federal politics. You ran for the Liberal Party in a 2015 federal election. You won and you were re-elected in 2019, and again in this most recent election. Why did you become a politician?
1: My... I think uh my father had a, a big influence on me. My father was uh wasn't not a person that uh engaged in politics. He uh he actually didn't like politicians too much. <laughs>
0: and both you and your brother became politicians.
1: Yeah, interestingly, uh both my brother and I became politicians and and some of my nephews are engaged in politics now. But uh he was he was a person that um uh you know he was educated enough so he could do income tax uh returns he could write letters he uh you know he understood quite a bit more than most people here uh, were able to there was there's no there was really no uh, office or uh, of any sort that would help indigenous people that couldn't speak or read and and so he helped people he, our house was a revolving door of people coming in and asking questions or getting them my father to help them try to resolve issues whether it was a letter that needed to be written or old age pension or income tax return so um you know he made a big difference in their life and like he didn't charge them anything he just he had there was nobody else so he had he felt he needed to step up so as I got older he he got me to help him do income tax returns and I started to get to know the elders quite a bit and I was growing up in a community where there was a residential school and had been since the 1800s and uh I carried a, a lot of anger because I I grew up listening to the horror stories that uh of instance that happened in the school because both my parents attended they didn't my my parents because they were local residents only went to school during the day and then returned at home so they didn't have it as bad as this as as the kids that came from all over the north to the school and uh it it really angered me that nobody could step in We i i would be very angry at my parents and say, why didn't anybody help them? And said, "Well, you couldn't, you would go to jail. The police were there. And so between the, the anger that I felt and uh, for, for what was happening and, and angry that nobody could help. And then seeing my dad actually help people made me really want to make a difference. And uh, as soon as I went to the, uh, to, to high school, I I got involved, and and I knew that being involved is where you could make a difference and you could make change. So I, I was involved. You know, I I was I formed the first uh, student council at our little elementary school, and then I joined the, the board of governors uh, as a as a student rep at the at the residential school and uh, I, I just kept going when i when I came back. Uh, a lot of the elders wanted me to travel to the tribal council meetings because a lot of them couldn 't speak English well, and I was anxious to go because I wanted to change the, our community I wanted to improve our community not so much on the indigenous issue side but for sporting events and for facilities and things of that nature but while I was there, I was also getting an ed- education on 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 land claims and uh, self-governance and the treaty process. And so it just kind of evolved uh, naturally for me. And at, at, uh, I, I looked at our community and, and, you know, looked at our struggle trying to get facilities for our young people and looked at who was making decisions and our, our settlement council had nobody that was indigenous on it. And, and i i I thought that I was unacceptable, so when i was twenty two I decided to run and uh I, I became i think one of the i think i i was the first indigenous mayor and uh, once I was elected and i thought, oh my god what do I do now but then <laughs> but then I knew what i wanted i need, i knew what we needed at least i knew what I had run for, and so my focus was on trying to get better facilities in our community and uh, as things improved in our community people said well you're doing a pretty good job maybe you should be the MLA but I I didn't really want to get involved at that level I had young children and uh, uh, but I I was still very vocal about uh, how things were not being done and uh, how our community wasn't being involved and how our uh, people were were left out of decision making, and finally, at at, at a point, uh, even though I, I my intentions were to carry on my education, and I decided, well, uh, I can't just complain from the sidelines anymore. I need to get involved, and we need a better quality of life. And so I did. I did run, put my name forward, and, and I became the MLA, and and uh, I continued to plug away, trying to make the world a better place. And it's, at least our little corner of the, the country
0: when you arrived in ottawa after the 2015 federal election you had all this experience lifelong experience as a politician really in the northwest territories but when you arrived in ottawa you were suddenly working with colleagues who are mostly non-indigenous how was that different
1: it, it was quite a bit different um uh, i was i, I was uh, uh, I I can't say I was retired, but I was already... Sammy retired when um, the calls started coming in for me to run. A lot of uh, the elderly, uh, a lot of the uh, uh, Indigenous leaders and uh, people from different communities wanted somebody that had some experience in politics. And they also wanted somebody that came from an Indigenous community because I knew the realities of living in a small community. Uh, but I had never been involved in party politics. Uh, we practice consensus government at the uh, Indigenous Council level, uh, the Municipal Council level, and and at, at the Government Northwest Territories level, which means uh, a lot of discussion and compromise, and uh, you know, you talk until you have a position where everybody can live with it, and and it's not you. In that practice, in in that system, you have to build alliances. You have to work together to make things work. And uh, so, when I uh, was encouraged to to put my name in for uh, the MP, uh, I didn't belong to any party, and uh, I I looked at the different parties and and their po- their politics and 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 what they stood for, and and I kind of lined up the best for for liberal and and the liberal party, the writing association had been asking me. So I decided to run. And once I got elected, um, I got a real eye opener, even though I was, I had watched it on TV and I had, you know, uh, read a lot about it and, and, and studied a bit about party politics. I I was kind of shocked at the level of, uh, of attacks that, politicians and party politics put on each other.
0: Because you don't have a party system in the Northwest Territories.
1: We we don't. We have a consensus government style. So to see people attacking each other, trying to uh, crush the opponent, just just criticize them, I I thought was so disrespectful. And I still do. I still think there's a lot of time wasted. I think there's a a lot of effort made and, and Embarrassing people and discrediting people when the issue just kind of lingers there sometimes it's ignored just just to support your party and um it it's um it's not it's not my favorite way of doing things and uh sometimes it even makes me uh stand to the side because the issue is not what is being debated it's a the the back and forth of uh mudslinging and everything else that happens and i i still i've been there six years and i still shake my head but um i you know i i knew and i and i i recognized that we needed a voice in in the house of commons we needed the indigenous presence and uh I I have lots of pushback. I I had lots when I put my name forward and I still do to this day from a lot of Indigenous people, uh, more so from Southern Canada that, you know, how dare you as an Indigenous person line up with the government, the one that took our land, the one that put it in the Indian Act and the assimilation policies. But my response has always been, and it's my firm belief that uh, you can't make change unless you're where the decisions are and i learned that you know in grade school i learned i i it was my survival mechanism in in residential school because i was able to influence decisions and and that's what i i i continue to do and i think it's you know my presence as the only mp that attended residential school and uh the only MP that lives in a small Indigenous community, um, you would think would be, uh, you know, uh, not even recognized. But I think I get a lot of attention because of it, because so many people want to know what's going on. Uh, The other thing that really shocked me when I first entered the, the chambers of the House of Commons and started meeting all my colleagues and and talking uh, you know informally is the lack of knowledge uh, about the north and about indigenous people in in the north uh, pretty much uh, everybody knows about the treaties everybody knows the history of the Dene and the Valuet and the Métis. and everybody knows the importance of uh, dealing with land claims and self-government and and righting a lot of the wrongs that were were done to the indigenous people,
0: but your fellow MPs didn't. Uh,
1: some of my fellow MPs knew a bit about it. There was there's some MPs that know absolutely nothing. They they did not know what a denny was. Uh, they did not know what an Indy it was. And and I thought. In this country, in this day and age, everybody would know, uh, you know, the, the invaluable are, what used to be referred to uh, as Eskimo and the Dene are what is referred to, uh, or was referred to as Indians, but both those terms are, are derogatory and, uh, insulting. So, uh, it kind of, uh, opened my eyes that, uh, you know, we got a lot of work to do and, uh, education on Indigenous past history and, and current uh, uh, situations are, are something that somehow we got to figure out that maybe by putting it in the curriculum or everybody should know uh, Canada's history. And the Canada's history starts with Indigenous people. So uh, that, that's going to be something that's uh, going to be very
0: important. You mentioned that you received criticism from indigenous leaders when you ran for federal politics. I'm interested to hear a bit more about that. Do you feel that, that there's a conflict between representing indigenous interests on one hand and those of the federal government on the other?
1: Yeah, sometimes. There, there's times when um, uh, the indigenous uh, governments and indigenous population want me to Jump up and down and, and be very loud on on certain things uh, that you know would force me to uh, attack members of my own party. Um, and uh, for the most part, uh, especially with constituents in the north, um, I'm able to to talk to them. I, I have a very good communication uh, connection with uh, all the. Municipal governments in the Northwest Territories. I have good contacts with uh, the indigenous governments and, and talk very frequent frequently with them, and the government Northwest Territories, all the MLAs and the ministers. Uh, so you know, I, I I have a good sense of what's going on, and uh, I and and I think that's the key. And a lot of times, uh, there's issues where we need to to. Have a, a a good discussion on it because my my plan or my uh, my strategy is to have many voices from the north on the same, saying the same thing, and, and and it seems to work because uh, I really encourage participation at the federal level, whether it's through committees or presentations to to different uh, caucuses. Um, um, then I try to get people from the North involved. And the more people know about how things work in Ottawa, the more I I stay in touch with them, It it's, it's better for us. And uh, I don't think we've ever had this much engagement from, from people in the North. And uh, they're excited. People are excited that they, they get a, a chance to... Uh, even if it's over Zoom, they, they can present to the Finance Committee or the Indigenous uh, Affairs Committee or or the Indigenous Caucus or uh, set up a meeting. We can coordinate a meeting with the Prime Minister or one of the ministers. and uh, it, It's something that we never had before. And the level of contact between the federal government now and, and compared to what it was is, is night and day. We never had that kind of access. So it's helped. Um, Diffuse situations where people dug in their heels and said, you know, you can't do this or don't do that. Or, or uh, our party uh, was would be trying to move something forward where we felt it wasn't right. Uh, the, the communication level has helped us disengage some of these uh, these challenges. So uh, it, it's, it doesn't always work, but uh, for the most part, it's pretty good
0: it must really help that you have insights from both sides into the challenges and opportunities in achieving reconciliation. And it's quite a unique perspective to have in Parliament because you're one of only 10 Indigenous MPs. And as you said, you're the only one who has experience from residential school. Do you often get questions from other MPs about Indigenous issues?
1: Uh, Yes, lots of questions. A lot of times... um people will just uh, want to sit down and have a coffee and talk and 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 uh, talk about things that are, are are confusing to them about the indigenous people or indigenous issues or, or just uh, want to see how I feel about certain things sometimes there's uh, private members bills that are being considered and they want to know uh, you know they don't want to be insulting, or they want they don't want to step on anybody's toes, or they want to know what the protocol is. And uh, you know, so they they talk to me. I can't always answer all the questions, but uh, I, I try to give them as much of my opinion as I can, and and share what I know. And I and I don't know everything about indigenous people, but uh, because indigenous people across the country are so different, and there's no one-size-fits-all. So I I try to be honest with them and and tell them what I can and give them advice the best I I think I can do.
0: It's obviously important for the reconciliation process that Parliament is representative of Indigenous people. And that's, of course, difficult with only 10 Indigenous MPs. That's just 3% of MPs. That's well under the percentage of Indigenous people in Canada. And even for those who are elected, there are challenges. We recently heard this from Umu Kakak and also from racialist MPs, such as Selina Cesar-Chavan, who has also spoken up about racism on Parliament Hill. What's your reaction to that? And based on your experience, how can Parliament become more welcoming and supportive of Indigenous MPs?
1: The issue of racism is a difficult one to challenge. Uh, and... A lot of time racism is built built around ignorance of of uh, the other people's uh history and uh you know lack of knowledge on their traditions and their culture i i, I get a I, you know i i lived with racism all my life and uh i try to not get stuck in a in in a in a situation where I'm angry about it all the time, but I think that um, as indigenous people, we need more role models. As I said earlier, I, I when I decided to run, I was already semi-retired, but I did a lot of work in my spare time with youth, and I realized that the youth needed role models and the, the youth in our small communities needed to be able to see that people from communities in the north from small communities that are indigenous can make their way forward into the rest of Canada and and that kind of, that was one of the things that helped me decide that I should try to get myself elected and I I see a lot of people as I travel in the north, a lot of young people say, I want your job. You know, that was not something that people seen before because people model, model themselves after what they know and what they see. And young people, for the most part, all they could see was teachers and RCMP in the small communities. And usually uh, they didn't get treated well by those people. So now uh, I want to see, you know, the governor general that's indigenous and, somebody in the Supreme Court that's Indigenous. But uh, I, I think there, there needs to be more education for sure. And I think the education has to start at a young age. Uh, it would be nice to see the curriculum include studies and uh, education about Indigenous people in our schools. Because uh, a, a lot of times, uh, and, and it happens with MPs, they're, they're saying things that are they they're saying things that are that are uh, insulting without really knowing it it's it's just the way they grew up and if you're not exposed to a culture if you're not exposed to a population that's different than yours you know sometimes you you don't even know that you're 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 being racist and and that's going to be a good start um, and Indigenous people are not are not looking for sympathy. I, I'm not looking for sympathy. Nobody in my family is looking for sympathy. But we want people to understand where we're coming from and what we're up against. You know, lives really changed in the Indigenous part of uh, uh of, of this country when the treaties were signed, and. uh it it it's totally different, and the indigenous thinking is not. It doesn't always line up with what the Canadian population thinks, and the goals and aspirations are a lot of times different. And uh, it's important to understand that. And uh, um, as as MPs, uh, we're always working towards trying to get cabinet and the prime minister to develop a strategy that would work for us as, as MPs. And uh, outside of that, I I certainly encouraged anybody that would listen that is indigenous and looking at uh, being a federal politician to, to try and do so because uh, I know for a fact that if we had a hundred indigenous MPs in the house of commons, the tone of discussion on indigenous issues would change. And, and I think most people would realize that we're only trying to live at the Canadian standard of living. You know, we're only trying to develop uh, healthy communities, you know, that have healthy uh, people living in it with, with uh, opportunities for our young people and, a lot of times people don't understand that that's all we're after and you know, have a rightful place at, at decision-making tables. Our, our, we signed treaties and uh, peace and peace, friendship in order to coexist, but that didn't happen. Once the treaties were signed, government stepped in and developed this country without input from us. And that that was not what we expected. and uh, it's really been hard on indigenous people with all the different uh, policies that were introduced to assimilate people. Uh, it really created a, a situation where some people became dysfunctional because uh, lives were destroyed. but we don't need to continue that way we we can fix it. It's not too late, you know there's there's been one hundred and fifty years of uh, Uh, The Indigenous people get a really rough ride, but we can turn that page, and I think we're heading that way.
0: It's really great to hear that optimism. With that in mind, I'll ask what I've been asking everyone through this series. What are the three top things that non-Indigenous Canadians can do or should be doing as colleagues, friends, or decent citizens to contribute to reconciliation?
1: the top one has to be uh the priority ha- has to be uh for people to educate themselves on indigenous peoples history um you know take take the opportunity to read the truth and reconciliation's recommendations and and really try to get un- a really understanding of uh what indigenous people were up against and and why sometimes you see uh, people with addictions uh, uh, that are indigenous, you know, uh, going to treatment and it doesn't work because uh, I can guarantee you that almost every person that is dealing with an addiction, and we have lots in indigenous communities. Uh, if you scratch the surface, uh, they're dealing, they're 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 struggling with uh, trauma of some sort. And uh, uh, it's either trauma from the residential school, trauma from at home, trauma from, uh, you know, just live, trying to survive in a society that, that it doesn't understand them. So that, that would be number one. But I think people need to be able to just sit down and talk to somebody that's indigenous and see what the, where, where their thinking is at. And uh, uh, if, if anything uh, start to bring in an education system that has uh, education about indigenous people, and and based on what the indigenous people see as the the their history. Uh, you know, a lot of times, uh, ed- education uh, that talks about indigenous people is based on somebody that was non-indigenous and, and drafted it and. Uh, you know, it doesn't line up with what uh, we understand. Even the interpretation of the treaties and things of that nature uh, are, are so different.
0: So educate yourself, ask Indigenous people about their perspectives, and bring those perspectives into the education system. Now, what's the last one?
1: Well, I, I think um, if if we are going to have true reconciliation, uh we need to try to work towards living, uh, have uh, finding a way to, to make indigenous people, allowing indigenous people, to live to the Canadian standard of living, and and, and that's got to include uh, economic reconciliation, and uh, and and a lot of people are are of the opinion that indigenous people don't want to see development. Indigenous people don't want to work. Indigenous people don't own businesses. But I think people need to really take a look at uh, uh, nations where the nation is strong, where the nation has uh, control over development and the nation is, is able to stand shoulder to shoulder with other governments. They they cover the, the whole spectrum of what a society is. You know, the, there is a business side to Indigenous people. And... Uh, they can be very competitive and uh, they can, you know, provide a lot of uh, uh, towards the economy and and that's what needs to happen. In the North, uh, we have done quite a bit in terms of uh, trying to fit in with what the indigenous populations need and want. And 50% of our seats on uh, the regulatory boards are indigenous uh we share in the royalties uh that are are collected by the governments and so we don't have the same challenges that the south has when big economic projects come forward because the process involves uh, indigenous people right from day one people are not they're not made aware of a project after it's approved and then the government is trying to, or the industry is trying to sell it to them. They're involved right from the time it's an idea. And companies in the North now recognize that they maybe need to do a little extra when when they're working with Indigenous people in big projects. They sometimes have literacy programs and uh, education programs right on the job site. A lot of times they'll take the elders and, bring them to the facilities or the the project site just to so they're familiar with it because people got to understand we're not we don't come from a background of oil and gas or mining or or any any of those type of uh sectors so we need to be educated too we need to know what they expect so uh uh, I, i you know i would encourage especially people in the business community to to look at uh, what the North is doing when it comes to companies, I, I think uh, the North can uh, certainly be a model that others can consider. Um, I know our regulatory pro- process, for example, is being uh, checked out by other countries, and, uh, uh, and and it's it's something that we're quite proud of. Um, and and uh, the point about. Uh, economic reconciliation, I think, is also an important
0: one. You're so right. Thanks so much for speaking to me today, Michael. Marcy show
1: Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it very much.
0: A big thank you again to Michael McLeod for joining us. I don't know about you, but I'm starting to see a pattern in the everyday actions folks are sharing with us. First, they start with reading, And I mean, really reading the calls to action from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Michael also talks about education, educating ourselves on the histories of the indigenous peoples across this land, bringing these teachings into our education system, and most importantly, based on what indigenous people themselves see as their history. Michael's last point was especially interesting to me. For true reconciliation, Indigenous people must have a standard of living as the rest of Canada. This includes economic reconciliation and a future where Indigenous nations are standing shoulder to shoulder with other governments. Thanks also to you for joining me. Until next time. Everyday Reconciliation is brought to you by Rio Tinto and Canada 2020. The show is edited by Aaron Reynolds and produced by me, Elin Miller, along with Carolyn Smith and Aisha Jarrah. The artwork was designed by Sylvie Levier and the music was produced by Marius Miller.